Amen. I, uh, I empathize with Monty giving his daughter away. That was fun. Not actually away yet, but sort of away, right? Uh, daughter getting engaged. You know, I had three sons, and uh, I never really felt emotional about them getting married. I'm sort of like, get married and get out. Let's roll, right, <laughs> with guys. But then I have a daughter, too, and she's not getting married. So... Um, <laughs> That's what I think about when I hear about Monty. So uh, just stay home with Big Daddy. You're fine. Um, I was reminded this past week, we have, a, we have the grandest of all grandchildren. That's how all grandparents feel. And a uh, two-and-a-half-year-old little girl named Claire. And we were in Florida this past week, a few days, visiting them and had, had a lot of time with her. And some of the, just the sweetest name I hear is Paul Paul. Isn't that good? Or Maymaw. So, uh, did I say it right, Jenna? I didn't. <laughs> Maymaw. Maymaw, sorry. I'm working on it. We're new grandparents. Got things to work on. Maybe they'll address that in the parenting conference, right? So, <clears throat> I do want to reiterate to you, though, Jenna and I's conversation was, man, if we could start in our 50s being parents, how different would it look? I think when you're 27... You have so much to learn. And so I really want to encourage you, uh, parents, to, to set this day aside and get some equipping uh, that I know helped us and we certainly could have used more. Um, parenting from our instincts doesn't work well. I can promise you that. <laughs> so anyway, go from there. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> get your notes out, pens. As we get down to work this morning, this is our third week in this new book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, two weeks ago, I did a background introduction of the book of 1 Corinthians. Context, why Paul wrote the letter, what were the problems going on. Did all that in 1 Corinthians. And so you can go back and watch that uh, on our app or on our website. And Monty last week kicked off the first uh, 17 verses. And in doing so, he kicked off what we're calling a mini-series that deals with the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians. And this mini-series is entitled Wedge, Overcoming Division and Cultivating Unity. That's what Paul's dealing with with these first six chapters. Monty mentioned this last week. He said, wedges in the church come in the form of opinions, alliances, Attitudes, traditions, gossip, slander, assumptions, cynicism, assuming the worst and not asking questions, fear of man, do they like me, unresolved hurts, fear of healthy conflict, and what I call sometimes emotional projections, meaning I feel something about something, therefore it must be true, end of conversation. Those calls wedges. And here's the deal. Every church that has people in it is full of these, these potential wedge makers relationally with each other. And so in light of that, Paul, this church in Corinth was filled up with them. Paul addresses that. And I, I think summarizing those things that calls wedges, I would do in two words, insecurity and immaturity. 
That's when wedges take place. And so the first 17 verses, Paul speaks of the quarreling and division in the church. There are cliques in the church. People are worried about who's leading, who's getting the credit. And from a country perspective like I'm from, it would say you a lot of fussing and fighting in the church, right? So Corinth Bible Church is eat up with these problems, and Paul would write this letter of 1 Corinthians to address and correct these problems, to show this church and our church how to walk worthy of the gospel in every area of life, just not at church. Making sure the gospel affects, colors, shapes, forms everything, that there's no corner untouched by the gospel in our church. Paul's aim here is to help the church live thoroughly and completely by what God has done for us in Christ. That's why as you look at the picture of our strategy here at Fellowship Bible Church, what do you see in the middle? You can speak in church. The gospel. The gospel is the core. And if we get the gospel right, Paul is saying here, everything else we do in the church will be affected by it and it will honor God in the process. I love it. If you go back in verse 13, you can read it later. I love it how Paul uh, uh, says these questions when he, he says, was Paul crucified for you? Did Paul die for you? Now, Paul's saying that with some sarcasm there, and he's basically saying, look, you don't get the gospel. The problem is you don't get the gospel, so the solution is to be regrounded in the gospel. If you're thinking, I'm the one you look to. So in verses 18 through 31 this morning, he wants to paint this very clear picture for them of the gospel, because here's the deal. The temptation for them and for us is to look elsewhere, over here, over there and everywhere else to find the source of what makes a church a church and how we are to deal and relate with each other. Things like its facilities, its bank accounts, a church's accomplishments, who's in their church, who's the who's who of your church, its leaders, Who's doing what ministry? Who's getting the credit? And what happens is churches don't even realize is that this is where they are getting their source from. Paul knows that the gospel is the antidote to division, as I put in your title, and everything else that ails us. And here's what antidote, how it's defined in Webster. A medicine for remedy, for counteracting the effects of poison and disease, something that prevents Injurious or unwanted effects. Paul knows that the gospel is the medicine and remedy to counteract the poison and the disease of relational divisions in a church. And he makes it clear this morning, and he will unpack that for us in three primary ways the power of the gospel cross, the purpose of the cross, and the person of the cross. So read with me if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. 
Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's take a minute to remember this. Paul was in Corinth. He led these people to Christ. He discipled them and he taught them for 18 months. Matter of fact, he calls them in verse two saints. So these are Christians. These are believers. They are immature and insecure for sure. But these are believers. They're in the family of God But he sees very quickly because of how they're living and what's going on amongst them that they need this regrounding in the gospel. And so in verse 17, you can go back and look at it later. It was Monty's last verse. It's the transition verse between the two texts. Paul says basically this possible for Christians to void out or nullify the power of the cross and to make the cross void is to cancel out its actual benefit to those who believe in it. Now, when I say that, I don't mean in a salvific kind of sense or salvation kind of sense to nullify it, but I mean in a maturity, life change, growing in the Christ sense. So if we are going to fix the problem of division or any other problem that sin causes, Paul's saying you must not void out the cross because there's no problem that the cross cannot solve. In verse 18, he uses this phrase for the word of the cross. Another way to say that for us would be the message of the cross has two primary audiences. One is, And this is true for all humanity. I mean, there's not a third choice. One is for those who are perishing, who do not believe, Paul says it's foolishness, it's folly. That's one audience. And then the second audience, Paul says, for those who believe the cross is the power of God. And he says both of these audiences are actually in a process. The process says there's a process of perishing, and then he uses this phrase, this process of being saved. So what does that mean? It's actually a phrase that means sanctification. And in this process, there are three tenses, if you would, of salvation, of our salvation or sanctification. We have salvation past, which means saved from the penalty of sin. We have salvation future which means saved from the presence of sin when we're in glory, when we're in eternity. And then we have salvation present, which means we're being saved from the power of sin, to sin less. So here's what I would summarize and say, we get saved, which means we are delivered from hell, from eternal separation from God. But we are being saved, which delivers us from living like the world. That's what Paul's saying here. And those of us who are being saved have arrived at this existence as a believer. 
continuous sanctification because of the power of the cross. Look what Paul says in verse 24. He says, because of God's power, he's the one that called us. You didn't do it. I didn't do it. God has this call, and the Bible teaches that this call is effectual. What does that mean? That means when God calls you, you can't resist. He does what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, and when he wants to save someone, he calls them and they come. You came and I came. So once you become disconnected from the message of the cross, here's what Paul's saying, you become disconnected from the power of the cross. And when I say disconnected from the message of the cross, what I'm meaning is when the gospel is not the lens in which you see everything through, all of life, relationships, church, the world, believers, non-believers, work, when you don't see all of life through the lenses of the gospel, you become disconnected from the message of the cross and you become disconnected from the power of the cross. The way you are saved through the power is through the power of the message of the cross. And after you are saved, the way you experience being saved is also through the power of the message of the cross. It's the same. God's power to change you is connected to the same thing that saved you, the cross of Christ. The message of the cross, we know this. It's a big message. It has to do with the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. That's the gospel in a whole. We'll see more of that in chapter 15. But why Paul and then entire New Testament writers, all of them, why do they focus so much on the cross itself? Look at verse 23. Paul actually says, we preach Christ crucified. That's the focus many times. It is this reason. Because that event in history, that moment, if you would, that Jesus was suspended between earth, okay, between heaven and between earth on that wooden beam, that moment is the eye of the needle which through all that God has done for us comes to us. Let me illustrate with this. Let me take you back to seventh grade science class, okay? I wasn't paying attention in seventh grade, but I did a little review this week. <laughs> and uh, you may remember studying uh, what they call the physics of light. And as you can see in this picture, you have light coming in from one side, this white, beautiful, very precise light, this glowing white light. And then as you can see, it hits this prism. And as it hits the prism, we know what happens on the other side becomes all this color. All that that light represented coming in is now revealed to us in all its beauty. Here's what that represents in terms of the power of the cross. The light represents the radiant love and mercy, the perfect radiant love and mercy of Christ. And the prism of God, and then the prism is the cross of Christ. And all those colors, all that God has for us in Christ, 
all the grace, all the mercy, all the change of identity, all the love, truth, wisdom, purpose, biblical community, his word, intimacy with him, his spirit, his pursuit of us, his patience with us, all that is revealed to us through what? The cross. It takes the cross or the prism, if you would, to reveal it, to translate it, to show it to us. So ultimately, the gospel is the story of what took place on the cross and what really happened when he died. That's power. And here's the deal for us, application-wise. When we get that, the gospel, the power of the cross, when we see it, when we are shaped by it, when we have this consistent ability to put the gospel lenses on for all of life, and when we don't have the consistency to do that, and we are seeing life and others and all that takes place within us through a non-gospel lens, we have this awareness that something's wrong with me, not with what I'm seeing. And so we are able to take the gospel lens and reassert them to begin to see things clearly. Here's what happens to us. We forgive easier. We are willing to work through divisions. We are willing to do the hard work that it takes to work through human divisions with one another. We think rightly about God and ourselves, and that was probably Part of the problem in 1 Corinthians is they had this wrong view of themselves and wrong view of God. And we'll see why in just a minute. We don't make life about us. We seek peace. We are not self-promoting. And ultimately, we live out 1 Corinthians 13. We live out 1 Corinthians 13, but the passage on love that we love to read at weddings, but we hate to apply after we get married. I know early in our marriage, Jenna would read, she said, really all about 1 Corinthians 13, speaking of our marriage. It used to make me mad. Like, I don't really want to hear that right now, right? And, and she was right. She was right. When we get the gospel, when we put gospel lenses on, look what Paul says. This is what it looks like. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, happens all things, hopes in all things, and endures all things. So when I am not operating according to 1 Corinthians 4 through 7, 13, 4 through 7, guess what I know? There's an awareness here. I'm missing something about the gospel. When we get that, we start responding to others as God has responded to us. So he's responded to us with 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 kind of actions. In spite of us, he responds that way. And we start responding to others. We start giving away what we have actually experienced from God. <clears throat> that takes real gospel cross-dying power. No human has that power 
unless it first comes through the cross. I wish Jen and I had got this earlier in our marriage. But here's what I know now after 31 years. When Jen and I don't love each other in a 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 kind of way, we don't have a marriage problem. We have a gospel problem. (laughs) There's something about the gospel that we're not getting. And so it's easy to go back and say, instead of her being the problem or me being the problem, we get to go and see how we are unaligned with the gospel and how God responds to us, which makes us get in line, her for her, me for me, and begin to love each other in that way. Now, I know none of you can relate to that. The only one that struggles. Sarcasm. And then in verse 20, Paul asks some more questions laced with, he can get away with this, I can't, but laced with attention getting sarcasm. As if he's pointing his finger across the crowd of the quarreling believers in Corinth, he says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? As if the world thinks it can outthink God in some way. Paul is saying, God is saying, look, you want to debate? I'll be your huckleberry. Come on, let's go. God is essentially saying that as man gets smarter, he acts dumber. God makes man look like a fool when man tries to bring human wisdom into the discussion to solve problems caused by sin. When only the cross of Christ can solve sin. So here's what we need to understand. We have a problem at church, a problem at work, in your family, and you get counsel that contradicts God and his thoughts, and you believe that and act on that. Paul says you nullify the power of the cross. Verse 21. Another reason I love Paul is He keeps pushing his arguments. (laughs) And he's like, man, I'm going to get it across here. And in verse 21, he does that. He's pushing this argument even further. And he, he, he uses this phrase, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. All the world had and all the intellectual power in the world and all the wisdom and philosophy, all that it had it did not come to know God. We know that one from Romans 1. It says, although they could see God through his creation, they did not acknowledge God as the creator. So we think very practically. We, we think these brilliant astronomers, they peer into space in these powerful telescopes, and their conclusion is there is no God. We have these brilliant surgeons who cut into a human body, and their conclusion, there is no God. We have these incredible scientists who spend their lifetime studying the most complex, uh, small particles and DNA, and their conclusion is there is no God. Paul says in verse 21, when these folks walk through life with no thought of God, despite showing himself everywhere, Paul writes, it pleases God 
to use what the world calls foolish, this power of the cross, to save those who believe through his ultimate wisdom, the gospel. And then verse 22, we see here that God's, the exercise of God's power to save is not without challenge. There's a competitor in every human heart because of the, the tendency of every man to want to save himself or at least contribute to it, to at least add to it, to, to be saved, to save himself, where in some ways it's impressive and it terminates back on him that he can get some kind of credit for it, something that he can boast about. And here's how Paul lays out that argument. He says the what? The Jews, in verse 22, they want signs and miracles. They want some power shown through signs and miracles. And the Greeks, they want what? Wisdom and intellect and philosophy to make a case for themselves that to really say in their own way to save themselves. And so here's why a crucified Messiah is offensive to the Jew and to the Greek. Offensive to human pride. It's shameful. The Bible calls it offensive, disgusting, a crucified Messiah. Even Paul, prior to his conversion, lost his mind in an absolute rage. A rage that took him to the point of killing Christians and having them in prison. Because the gospel, nothing he could add to, was a stumbling block to him. He could not get his mind around the fact that some of his fellow Jews were actually worshiping someone who died a criminal's death. That this bloody, half-naked, gasping-for-breath person is actually the power of God for your salvation. Drove Paul crazy. It's many times why the respectable and self-sufficient folks of the world despise the cross because it takes away or dilutes from their own power. So the power of the cross. Secondly, the purpose of the cross. Look at verse 26 through 29. Paul begins to turn here and make it very personal in terms of application. He says, for consider your calling, brothers or sisters, the people in the Corinthian church, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. As I mentioned, the cross is a devastating blow to human pride. And because God loves people, he wants to save them from this ultimate consequence of human pride, which is separation for, from him for eternity. He wants to rescue us from depending on ourselves. And so here, Paul, in verse 26, speaks very personally to the people in Corinth who he knew. Remember? He knew them. And he said... <laughs> The full nature of the gospel's power should have been evident to you, people of Corinth. The people were in the church. And the reason, he says, is not many of y'all were wise according to the world standards. 
Not many of you were CEOs. Not many of you had your college degrees. Not many of you had money and power and influence and respect and good looks. Look, not many of you were. Now, he says there were a few. Paulus was a very smart guy, and I'm sure there were a few influencers in the church. A guy who used to run was the head of the synagogue, had crossed the street over to the church at Corinth. But Paul says the most of you were just plain, human, common folk. That God didn't choose you because you what you brought to the table. He actually, <laughs> he actually, verse 27 says, he shames the wise and the powerful of the world by choosing common folk that the world don't think much of. By building up his kingdom from this despised and rejected people, the political, social, cultural, religious, and intellectual have-nots, God sends the world this game-changing message. message. He says, no man can boast before God. The purpose of the cross is to literally produce an inversion. Here's what inversion means. What's down is up. And what's up is down. Paul says the purpose of the cross is to flip the script. The world says that these are the things that are important. And God says, no, I'm going to go antithetical to the world. And I'm going to actually choose folks who have no power of the world, save them and build my kingdom. And in doing so, in doing so, people now, those people I save who originally were created not to boast in themselves, but before the fall in Genesis 3, boast in the greatness of God, now they actually will. Think about this. Why would God choose the 12 disciples? Relatively unknown, relatively poor, most of them uneducated, just down-to-earth common folks with no cultural influence whatsoever. Why would he start off the greatest revolution known to man by picking those cats? To make his name great in all the earth. Why in the world? I don't even want to look at any of you. You think I'm stumbling? Hey, there he's talking to me. No, I'm talking to all of us. Why in the world would God call us to himself and save you and me? Why would he even mess with us in light of our stories? To make his name great. In all the earth. God has no tolerance for the proud and arrogant who view themselves as many gods usurping his holy throne. So instead of destroying us, he melts our hearts through the cross and we declare with the angels, great is our God. We in the Corinthians are evidence of divine foolishness that confounds the so-called wise of this world. This theme of boasting in Corinthians causing divisions, you know, boasting causes divisions. This theme of boasting in themselves and their leaders, which always causes division, is destroyed and then flipped so that we boast in God alone. And here's what else it does. It also shames 
and nullifies the values in which they were getting their own identity from. The people of Corinth were getting their identity, value, worth, and significance from their own titles, their own accomplishments, their own ability to conquer their world wherever they live, and Paul nullifies that. He cuts it off at the knees. The very things they were boasting in, he takes away their ability to boast in it. See, identity politics is not new. It happened then, and it certainly happens in our culture. And here for us, as believers in Christ, in the culture we live in today, we must ask ourselves a very important question. But Because our culture is full of divisions. And sometimes we're part of the problem as Christians, not the solution. And we should be solving the problem because we have the power to solve the problem. So here's the question for us. What do you boast in to get your identity from over the gospel? Is it your accomplishments? Is it your status? Is it your bank account? No, I'm good there. Is it your race? As a majority white congregation, is it your race? There is nothing about the gospel, no matter what color skin you have, where you to get your identity from. The gospel trumps race every day, every time. Proud of your heritage, glad in a healthy way, and you really had no choice in the matter. It's funny, my wife works for a dermatology, dermatologist. She's a nurse, and it's amazing how when you go down about three little milliliters or whatever, it all looks the same. How about being an American? Yeah, you can sing the national anthem and God bless America and... I'm glad I'm American. But folks, Jesus wasn't an American. He, he, he's international, all ethnicities, every country. He doesn't even love America more than he loves Russia. He doesn't. How about the flag? I love the American flag. And you can have opinions about all of these things. But when you are more passionate and more angry and more determined to get your thought across about America and the flag, and then you are the gospel. You've made those things idols over God. I can say a lot more. I'm probably already in trouble, but... <laughs> You know what? I've been in trouble before and I'm okay with it. Look, I know this. It breaks the heart of God to see his people. For lost people, they know no better. But to see his people doing the same thing that lost folks do over really stupid stuff, it breaks his heart. Now as an Old Testament scholar... Not me, Paul. I thought, need to clarify that. I knew. I sort of fit that mold as an Old Testament scholar. 
That's probably the last thing you may guess looking and listening to me. But Paul is an Old Testament scholar, and this is where he gets his thought about this boasting thing. He actually quotes, because he had most of the Old Testament memorized, Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight and declares the Lord. That's what we boast in that we were perishing, deserving of hell, and God called us, and we could not resist his call, and we boast in what he did on our behalf through the power of the cross and the purpose of the cross, and now lastly, the person of the cross. And I love these last two verses. Verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul now addresses the Corinthians directly to express positively what God has done in his calling of them. And he uses this beautiful phrase. I cannot think of a more beautiful phrase in all of Scripture than these words. Because of him, you are in Christ. Because of him, you are in Christ. Forever. Nothing changes that. Paul's saying you owe your existence to the activity of God as demonstrated in the cross of Christ. God has made Christ the crucified and now risen one to become wisdom for us, Paul says. And this is not a wisdom from the world which ends with us. It actually ends with him. And this phrase in Christ is beautiful to me. You could fill a library up with the number of books that have been written to describe all that in Christ means. I would grab one of those and wallow in it. Send me an email. I'll send you a list of them. These two crucial words, though, at its very foundational level, level means this. One, it means you are intimately and connected to and have a personal attachment to the Lord Jesus Christ himself forever, always. My brother-in-law just led a young college student to Christ a couple weeks ago. And months ago, as they were getting to know each other, he heard that young college student say, Miss, my favorite word is always. I just like the word always. When someone says, I'll always be there for you, I'll always be your friend, this was his favorite word. He came to Christ a few weeks ago and he read through the book of Matthew and he gets to chapter 28 and he sees where Jesus says, I will always be with you. And he wept. Mind-blowing. In Christ. And then the second thing it means, not only are we vertically connected intimately and attached to Jesus Christ himself, but we are also attached 
intimately and sweetly and deeply and richly to every other person who is in Christ. So vertically and horizontally, that's why you coming to church ain't about you. When you sing to God, you're really singing to each other. That's why all the one another's are in Scripture. And then he says that this wisdom is best understood in three illustrative metaphors. Righteousness means justification. It means this right standing with God. Paul is highlighting for us here our undeserved standing before a holy God because of the person of the cross. Secondly, he uses this word sanctification, which simply means God's commitment to do whatever it takes to conform you to the image of Christ, even if that means killing you and taking you home. Like, he's going to get you there. That's what Romans 8, 28, we love that verse. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called, save for his purposes. But verse 29 is the book, and verse 29 says, so that... All these things work together for good to those who love God called according to his purpose so that you will be conformed to the very image of his beloved son. He is committed to changing you. Now we can make it hard or we can make it easier. Thirdly, he uses this word <laughs> redemption. It's a metaphor from slavery. Or a metaphor from the Jews expressing their own deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. We were all slaves. When I was the chaplain of the Cincinnati Reds, I was doing a chapel service for the team. We did it in the weight room. It wasn't very fancy. You had 20 out of 25 guys, a few coaches laying over weight benches and sitting on the floor. I was doing this chapel service, and believe it or not, uh, Dion was there. I had taken Dion Sanders fishing a few weeks before. and I looked at Dion. I said, you like slavery? He shook his head, obviously no. I was being provocative. You have to be a little provocative with arrogant pro athletes. You have to probe them to listen because they think they know everything. Just because they're an expert in the sport doesn't mean they're expert in life. So I'm being provocative. And Dion said, no. I said, sorry, you're a slave. Well, you saw everybody sit up. Like, he ain't even scared of Dion. Woo, you know. <laughs> My point was here, we're all slaves to sin. And through the person of the cross... We have been set free to not sin. To sum this up, I would say on my worst day, in my worst moment, Jesus calls me beloved. If I hear a different message or voice, it's not him. Because I'm in Christ. I am in Christ. And this person... This power, this purpose, and this person is the answer to every division and addiction and all else that would ail a church. I'll close with this. A.W. Tozer says, consider your spiritual mercies and privileges.
which the Lord Jesus has invested in you and grumble and cause divisions at your lot in life if you can. If you can. Take a minute this morning and ask the question, so what? So what? And I think big picture, here's a question for us. Do I really get the gospel? And let's just start in my home, with my church folk, with the people I work with, with the people in my neighborhood. Do I get the gospel? Do I respond to them, irregardless of their response to me, the way God has responded to me while I was yet a sinner? And if I don't, what steps do I need to do to take that? Take a minute to ask that question.